Good morning. This morning I'm going to be reading Philippians 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thanks, thanks Christine. You and may be seated, and guess what? I'm going to take a seat, too. It's stool time. So... I know you, 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 would, you, would, you would think that like, oh, like, oh, he's just preaching from a stool today, no big deal. There was a lot of thought and deliberation and conversation with some others, like, hey, should I do the stool today? Uh, what? So there's a lot of stool controversy, Stoolgate uh, 2023, the first controversy of the year. Uh, no, um, I just, I knew today was going to be a bit smaller, and so um, I don't apologize for making y'all move in. Um, but I do just like, like, days like today where it's just a little more intimate and sweet, um, I want to just to be like a, a conversation, you know, family hanging out together and um, over the word, some good coffee. For those of you who drink coffee, uh, for those of you who don't, we'll pray for you still. Um, anyways, but no, it's, it is good to, to be together. Um, real quick, so pa- pa- Pastor Ryan, uh, he's with his family this morning. They're taking a little, little rest. And so just a little update on us. You know, my wife and I were uh, within a month of having our first. And so I know we're excited. We're really excited. And so with that, um, you know, we'll obviously probably spend a little time figuring out, this is, figuring out what it means to be a parent. Uh, and so, so just, you know, a chance for, for Ryan just to get to, um, you know, take a step back before, you know, his slow picks up with my absence. Uh, it's good. It's good. And so just, you know, be praying for them that they'd have a restful morning this morning. So anyways, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to your uh, Philippians chapter one uh, in your Bibles. So we're going to hang out uh, this morning. And so uh, I think about, you know, I think it's, it's cliche, cliches are cliches for a reason. Uh, you think about a day like today, it's the first day of the new year. Uh, it, it tends to cause us to either uh, think forward or think back. Um, a lot of times we think, when we think back on, on the new year about what was it of 2022 um, or the previous year uh, that went well? Um, what was it that, that didn't? Go well. What was it? What was some expectations that you had that that weren't met? Um, some of those might be just you know New Year's resolutions that you, you were going to try to read more books uh, and you didn't get through one, um, or you were going to try to eat healthier and then after the first week you realize that you don't want to. Um, you know, some of those they might be a little more of that nature, or or some of them might have been like you know I was hoping to see some things more restored in my life, or I was hoping to mature in my faith in these ways. And so some of them might be a little bit more weighty. And so a lot of times when we look back, it causes, it causes us to look forward, uh, and, and it influences how we look forward. Um, uh, but, but as the reality is, uh, it's not, and we, my, my wife and I, we were reading this in just a, a, a Paul David Tripp devotional that we read every night, um, and he was making the point that uh, we don't. We can't expect a single day um, to transform our entire lives. 
You know, I think with the newness of a new year, we, we, we put a lot of stock in like, all right, new year, new me. Uh, but the reality is, it's not going to be a day, a change in the calendar that's going to really cause change within us. We can't put the burden of a day to, to cause us, to bring us transformation. And I think what a lot of times what can happen, though, is around this time, as we are reflecting forward and back, um, and maybe it is we are in a little bit more of a lament and, and, and wishing that we were further along, there is a sense of, 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 of just like loss. There can be a sense of loss during this time, whenever you think back on what you wish you were and realize you're not. There can be the sense that, man, I feel incredibly behind. I am 35. I am 45. I am 25. I am 15. I should be way further along than I am than where, I, than where I'm actually at. Anyone feel that way? Does anyone feel that just sense of like, I am so far behind. And I'm like this yearly reminder, the flipping of the calendar is only a reminder of that, man, I'm not quite where I want to be yet. So whether you are looking back and you are filled with hope and you're excited about what you did in 22, or whether you're looking back and looking forward with a sense of lament, what today, what Philippians is going to help us see is that ultimately we don't want to be a people that rely on changes of seasons and years for transformation, but rather we want to be a people that is shaped by the gospel. We want to be a people who are shaped by the gospel. And so what, what really Philippians... Uh, um, 3 through 11 of the first chapter is, is an insight of how Paul is praying for this group of people that he loves so much. He says at one point that I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ, in which we think about how much does Jesus love uh, his children? A lot. And so he's, he's coming from this heart, and his ultimate hope is that they would be a people who are continually shaped by the gospel. His prayer really gets to the, what the focus of his prayer is that, that they would be a people that are confident in the gospel, and not only confident in the gospel, but that they would be a people who would point one another to the hope that's found in the gospel, ultimately to the praise and glory of God. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning for just a few minutes in Philippians 1, is that I hope for us at Redeemer that we would be a people who are shaped by the finished work of Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that that would be the cornerstone of how we see everything, that the gospel and what Jesus has done for us would be the lenses in which we pursue everything, and that we would also be a people who would help one another have that same lens, and ultimately we'll see how that actually is what glorifies God. And so, um, like I said, Paul is writing this to the church in Philippi. Uh, and the nature of this letter is, is, is just one of thankfulness. Um, he uses the word joy over 10 times. And it's not, Philippians isn't a very long letter. It's very short. Um, but he just, he's, this, this letter is, is just one in which he's thankful so much for the Philippians, for their church, for their faithfulness. Um, they've been very generous to him. They've been very kind to him. They've, they've supplied him every need. He says, and they've also been, not only were they partners with him, um, as he says in verse 4, um, not only, sorry, so verse 5, but not only were they partners with him, but they were partners with him while he was in prison. And that is a significant thing, is because especially back then, you weren't friends with people who were in prison. You didn't want to associate with those who were prisons because they were 
historically criminals. And so to actually, for these people not only to love Paul, but to, to, to be his partner, which that word partner is a word that we're all familiar with, uh, koinonia, which is fellowship. And it's this, this word that means this, this, this partnership, this fellowship that happens from a common association, uh, which in this case is Christ, um, that, that that idea of this shared faith, this, this shared hope in the gospel um, transcended any social norms to where that even though Paul was in this lowly place, uh, they didn't care because his location uh, wasn't the basis of their partnership with him. It was the gospel. It was, it was what Christ has done. And so he's writing this letter, um, and, 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 and he's writing this, as he's writing this, what he wants for them, it's really, he wants to show them the power of the gospel that's happened in his own life, the power of the gospel that can happen in their life, and ultimately how the power of the gospel can influence those around them. Paul was also using uh, his pris- imprisonment as a means to spread the gospel. He says later in the letter that, like, I'm even telling the guards about the hope of Jesus. So Paul, for Paul, no circumstance was wasted. Every circumstance was an opportunity to point people to the hope to be had in Christ. So really quick, let's read um, verses 3 through 6 again. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And the first day there is just the first day that they believed. And he says in verse 6, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so you think about the idea of confidence. Um, so Paul was first off hoping that they would be a people who are confident in the gospel and this, what Jesus has done. What does it mean to be confident? What's a, what's a way, you know, you can actually answer. Uh, what does it mean to be confident? Having no doubt. I like that. You're sure. You know this is to be true. Like, I am sure that my wife loves me. I know that without a doubt. I am sure that an In-N-Out burger is vastly superior to a Whataburger burger. Can I get an amen? Can I get some booze? I actually got more amens than booze. I'm surprised on that, right? But, but so when you say we're confident in something, right, you have no doubt that this is true. You are sure, you are absolutely positive that nothing else is going to like, sway you from, from this, what you believe to be true. And so Paul in verse 60 says that I am sure of this. And so when he says that, he's saying I am confident of this. There is no doubt in my mind uh, of, that, of what I'm about to say that I am confident, right? Confidence ultimately affects belief, right? Confidence affects what we believe. What was Paul confident in? What was he sure about? What did he have no doubt about as he's writing to this group of people that he loves? What was it? That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident of this. So what is this good work? What is this, this good work? Go ahead and flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 really quick. It's, the book, it's just the book before. As a side note, this would, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 110 um, would be a great scripture to memorize. It is, it is a very clear picture of what is the gospel. 
Uh, what is this hope that we have in Jesus? And so Paul is confident about that the good work that Jesus began in them, like he's going to be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We'll get more on what the day of Jesus Christ is in just a second. But what, is Jesus, what does Paul mean by this good work? Let me read, uh, start off in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, he's also the writer of this letter. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, in verses 1 through 3 of, of chapter 2, we're getting a pretty bleak picture here, right? What, Paul, what you actually notice is you, if you tease out the grammar a little bit of 1 through 3, is that you see a lot of these verbs that are used are used in the active tense, meaning what, what Paul, Paul is describing our state before Christ. He's saying that this is what you were actively doing. So he says that you were dead in your sin in which, in which you once walked, it is a past tense thing, but when, when, when it was in that moment of that past tense, it was an active thing that you were walking in your sin. You were following the prince of power of the air, which is talking about Satan. You lived in the passions of your flesh. You were carrying out the desires of sin. What we see, what the picture that Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 2, is that there was this active pursuit of, uh, of sin. There is this active pursuit that I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what's best. Carrying out the desires of the flesh. Following the prince of the power of the air, which again is the dark authorities and Satan. And what Paul makes clear is that we were actively engaged in our sin prior to Christ. But he doesn't stop in verse 3. So, so we were actively sinning. And what we see in verses 4 through 8, really 4 through 10, is that while we were actively sinning, Jesus is actively the one who pulls us out of that. Look in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. I knew that was going to happen. All right, we're still good? We're still good? All right. Um, and raise us up with him and seat with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So verses 1 through 3, we see this pursuit of sin that all of us were engaged in prior to Christ. And verses 4 through 10, you see Jesus being the one who's actively pulling us out of that. Because you think about if we are dead in our sins and trespasses, we've said this before, what can a dead person do? Nothing. A dead person is not capable to make themselves undead. They have to be pulled out by somebody else. And that's the nature of how it was when we were walking in our sin. We were dead in it. And there was nothing that we could do about that. But Jesus, because he's kind and he's gracious, he pulls us out. He makes us alive together with him and the Father. And what he says also in, in these verses that we are now seated 
with God in the heavens. That's a present reality, meaning we are now with God. We are with him. And so just like the sinning part was an active thing when we were before Christ, we now see that the reality of those who are in Christ is now an active thing as well. So you um, are a recipient of grace. You are seated with him in their heavenly places. You have this gift of salvation because of the finished work of Christ. And it was by grace in which this happened, not of your own works, as he says in verse 9, lest you may boast. We didn't do this. So when Paul says in verse 6, back to Philippians now, that he who began the good work in you, this is what he's talking about. Jesus began this good work of salvation in you. You didn't start that in you. Because if we could clean ourselves up enough, if we could fix ourselves up enough, you know who's going to get the credit for that and the glory for it? Us. And better yet, if it was up to us to begin this good work, who is the one who's going to have to maintain the good work? And if we know ourselves enough, we all probably know that we're pretty broken and don't have a really good shot at maintaining anything, right? So we see that the promise of verse 6 is that Jesus began this good work of salvation, and he will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so, so the question actually would be good to ask is, is our salvation um, not complete, because he says he's going to bring it to completion. That word completion means, uh, or also means perfected. He's going to perfect it at the day of Jesus Christ, which the day of Jesus Christ is when Jesus comes back and returns. So he's had his first coming when he came to this earth as a man, uh, and when he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again uh, from the dead, and now he's with the Father in heaven. When he comes back, he's going to bring and restore all things. So that's what Paul is talking about. He's trying to get their eyes on that, that there is going to be a day where he's going to come back and then restore all things. So this idea when he says this good work he began in you, he'll be faithful to complete. In one sense, when we put our faith in Jesus, man, we, we are, like you say, we are with him. Right? Like, like we just said, we didn't like do anything to earn it. And if we didn't do anything to earn it, we're not going to do anything to lose it. We're, we're with him. But do we still struggle with sin? Are we still plagued by our own darkness? Are we still plagued? Yeah. And so it's at the day of Jesus Christ when he restores all things and when that's going to be finally be dealt with. But in the meantime, he's still carrying us through it. He's still carrying us through it. And so it's this meantime, this space in which we live in, in which Jesus is actively helping us put to death our sin. He's actively helping us rearrange our affections away from the things of this world onto him. It's this rearranging of these desires and delights, uh, getting a less of an appetite for the things of this world and more of an appetite for himself. That's the work in which he's engaging in. And so it, it, in the life of every believer, God is committed to this work. He is committed to this work of helping us uh, know and love him more and look more like Jesus. But what might cause us not to be confident in the gospel? So this is what, this is what Paul is encouraging them to be. He's trying to get this in their head, to be, to be a people who are confident in the finished work of Christ. But in reality, we know these things to be true, right? We, we, we believe it at times, but how many times do we oftentimes just mean like, like the, the, uh, what we know and what we feel is a little disconnected. So this, a lot of times what might happen is that there might be reasons for us, like though we know we can be confident in the gospel, we just don't feel it. We don't think we actually believe it in the moment. And, and what, what are, there's a lot of reasons why we may not believe or we may have struggled to believe or we may kind of like 
even doubt a little bit. Uh, and, and, and I want to highlight a few of them for just a moment. But again, what Paul is getting at here is that he's trying to help them be a confident people, a people who are sure in the work of Christ. But what, what are some stumbling blocks? What are some roadblocks? There's a lot of them, but I just want to highlight a few. One, I think there's just awareness of our own brokenness. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you felt like you just had really blown it? You really just, man, I was way out of line there. And you, what the immediate response wasn't a turning to Christ, knowing that you'll get grace and, and, and help in the time of need, but rather it was just you felt guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. I mean, I think all of us on some level, probably that's a, probably a pretty common experience is that we know we, when we mess up, we, we, our immediate response is guilt and shame. And when we feel those things, again, I think sometimes those are good indicators because they can hopefully redirect us, but a lot of times what we do is that we sulk in that and, and we just deem ourselves, man, I'm not, man, I've, I've blown it. This is, this, it was, this, this is the time. This was the time. You know, God has given me lots of chances and this was the time in which that's it anymore. I'm done. I feel that way. If we buy into that, are we demonstrating a confidence in the gospel? No, we're demonstrating that we're still trusting in ourselves for something. We're still trusting in ourselves for something. And so what the gospel promises here is for those, if we feel plagued by our own just insecurities, our own uh, shame and guilt from knowing we've blown it. Again, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Again, Jesus is the one who's bringing it to completion. He is the one who's transforming you. He is the one who's changing you. He is the one who's producing the fruit in you. And so the reality is, in these moments in which we feel this guilt and shame, preach the gospel to yourself. That No, like, therefore, if I am Christ, no one is condemned. I'm not condemned because of Christ. Not because I'm doing something, because of Christ. His righteousness was what makes me right, not mine. And so what we can be confident in is that in the midst of those moments, we have hope. We can have a confidence. A confidence that doesn't stem from us, but it comes from Jesus. God is with you in the midst of your sin. You can actually turn from it in the moment you do it. It's scandalous, isn't it? Feels a little weird. Well, I always, I use this, uh, I use this with my youth at the time, whenever I was, you know, with youth, I was, it's almost like, if you just like go and uh, Joel, I'm not going to do it. But if I just went and punched Joel in the face right now, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Like, like what do you think Joel is going to respond in that moment? Joel's a nice guy. He probably would forgive me. But like, that, like it's, it's this weird, like you do some kind of offense towards somebody and then like, it's scandalous. And that's, I mean, when we sin and engage in God, we're, just, we're telling God, I don't need you. I'm going to do my own thing. But it's in the moment we are messed up. When we realize we sin, man, we can go to him. He's gracious. He's with us. He's kind. This is, this is what he did. But I think another stumbling block for us also um, is one uh, that, that the scriptures speak to a lot about, especially in the Proverbs, is this fear of man. This fear of man. If we're honest with ourselves, the approval and disapproval of those around us can play a big effect in how we live, right? 
the opinions of others, this perceived authority that we have given to other people. By perceived authority, I'm not talking about those who do have authority over you, like your boss or your parents or whomever. Um, but I'm talking about those, for whatever reminds, we've built them up in our minds to be a people that like, hey, I need this person's approval. I need this person's acceptance. And if I don't have it, I feel like a part of me is crumbling. Right? And so all of a sudden what happens is that we elevate the, the view of man higher than we do the view of God. And, and, and the Proverbs speak to this a bunch. Proverbs 29, 25 uh, says that um, the fear of man lays a snare. Y'all know what a snare is? I didn't either. I'm not a hunter, but it's a trap, right? It's a trap to kill. It's a trap to kill. The fear of man is a snare. But what's the, what's the inverse of that? But those who trust in the Lord are safe. Those who trust in the Lord are safe. And so a lot of times when we give into this fear of man, we're, we're elevating the view of them over a trusting God. And, and what happens is that we have a disposition, and a lot of times it's, it's very sneaky, but it's this disposition that we walk around in that is more concerned about what others think or what, or what certain people think than we do what God does. Like that's, that's one that your pastor struggles with a lot. I'm not talking about Ryan, I'm talking about me. Uh, yeah, he's, man, he's, I'm, no. Hey, Ryan, I'm sure he's watching, I don't know. <laughs> me, I'm talking about myself here. Just to make sure we're clear. Uh, and maybe if we're honest with ourselves, you know, you might find this to be true about yourself. But the promise, so the inverse of this, though, is that the, the fear of the man lies is, is a snare. Like it's not going to lead to life. It's, not lead, it's going to lead to the life that we may hope it does. But rather, what is going to lead to life is this trust in the Lord. For those who trust in the Lord are safe. Are safe. He also said, there's another proverb that says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord, I trust in the Lord, is a fountain of life. And what that means is, this, is we want to elevate this view of God over this view of man. Because ultimately, it's in the Lord who's our refuge, as the Psalms speak to. He is our safe place. He is the one, man, who we get life from. We draw life from him. And so, so, so the, 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 the hiccup might be for a lot of us to, to lose confidence in the gospel is that oftentimes we have this higher view of man um, than we do of God. And so because of that, we, we can easily walk in such a way that we're not, you know, we, we, we think man's uh, ultimately is where our life comes from. But God, who is faithful to begin this work of salvation in us, uh, who will bring it to this day of completion, um, how does the gospel speak to this specific thing? Is that ultimately, if we are in Christ, we're approved. We're approved by the one uh, who ultimately holds our eternity in his hands. The biggest thing, and if, if, the, if the one who holds the biggest thing in our hands, man, it, it is safe, man, what can man do? Our approval comes from Christ. Our approval comes from Christ. And so we can speak to this thing, this, this roadblock of this fear of man, and combat it with the, uh, the gospel by saying, you know what, my approval does not come from what this perceived authority I've given to others, but rather it comes from Christ. 
Last one I want to touch on um, is, I think, another roadblock to a disbelief of the gospel or a full disbelieving into uh, is a fear of consequences. There's a fear of consequences. By nature, the gospel is confrontational. The gospel is confrontational. Why? Because it's calling us out on the, um, that, that, that we're not sinners by identity, but we do still sin, that we're still broken people. And the gospel confronts us, calls us to confront those things. The gospel calls us to be, to be aware of the reality of who we were and what we still struggle with. And so, and why I think this is a big thing, this fear of consequences, is because a lot of times we don't want to fully confront our own brokenness because we know where it'll lead. So one of my favorite verses, it promises um, uh, in the New Testament, uh, John in his first epistle, he says that um, uh, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, uh, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, this is a beautiful promise, isn't it not? Like, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of all of it, no matter what it is that we're confessing. That's a good thing, is it not? Um, and this idea of confessing, it's not just like a, oh, uh, it's not a flippant, I'm sorry, and then you go back to doing the same thing. But rather, this is this inner desire and disposition that this, this sin, this thing that I'm confessing, uh, I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. Right? And this is not saying that like, that means you, you struggle, you won't struggle again when you confess. But rather, what it is saying is that there's this thing in my life that I hate, that I don't want it to be a part of anymore, or that I know is wrong, that I need to turn from because it ultimately is stealing the joy and affections that I can have in Jesus. And, it's, and so, so this word confession is this turning from. It's this turning from. It's this acknowledgement that there's this thing in my life that I don't want to be a part of anymore, or I know is wrong. And so what repentance is, repentance is an invitation. We've said this before. Repentance is an invitation to the kind of transformation, to the kind of change that our hearts are really longing for. It's an invitation to the kind of transformation that our hearts really long for. And, and I think here's where the fear of consequences might come in. When we are admitting where our sin is, where our brokenness is, we understand that the effects of that, the repercussions of that are very real. It's easy for us to mix up consequence with condemnation. But what, what we see also in the scriptures so often, um, we see it again in, Pro, we see it in Proverbs 3, is that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He says in Proverbs 3.12, he says that, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves or disciplines him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. A lot of times if we're honest about our sin, here's the thing. I think a lot of times we might not want to repent of our sin or turn from it because we know if we acknowledge this thing, then we have to acknowledge this other thing, and then we have to acknowledge this other thing. And all of a sudden there's this web of sin and brokenness that we have to realize and confront that we just don't want to. Anybody? So when we're acknowledging it and we have, we're trying to move away from it, yes, the grace of God covers it. You are clean. You are forgiven. 
but the consequence of our sins still might happen. It feels hard and it feels harsh and it feels like discipline. But what the scripture says is that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And those whom he loves, it's a sign that you belong to him. And we fear what the fallout, we fear what the fallout might happen when we confess. We might fear the repercussions because a lot of times it might have to completely rearrange our life. Or it may cause us to be honest with people that we don't want to be fully honest with. But what's the gospel promise in the midst of the fear of consequence? Is that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Discipline can sometimes be the greatest way in which we experience the grace of God. This is not me saying, it. go, go seek it out. It's fun, right? But it is me saying that discipline doesn't feel good, but it oftentimes is how we experience the grace of God. And what we see, no matter is what we confess, the promise of 1 John is that he will be faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning that he is going to continue to work in you to put this thing to death. Even if it hurts, it is for your good and for our joy. It is in discipline, and oftentimes we feel the great, we can experience the greatest grace of God that truly brings the transformation that we all long for. And so don't ignore repentance out of a fear of consequences. You are robbing yourself of joy. You are robbing yourself of knowing Jesus more, far more intimately than you could ever imagine. And you're free to confess it because guess what? Going back to the, to the one before, your approval's in him. So no matter what you confess, you can rest assured that he's with you, that he's not going to be like, I thought that was it. And so this is a prayer for us. This is the prayer, this is the hope that we are a people who are confident in the gospel, that we are confident in what Christ has done for us. This is what Paul is saying is that there's a space in between the beginning of this good work and the completion of it when Jesus comes back. The space in between in which we all are in right now. Um, the only hope that we have is it is not in what we do or bring to the table, but is what Jesus has done and is doing in us. And, and the thing is that Paul gets at here is that not only is he trying to remind them individually of this hope in the gospel, but he wants them to be a kind of people in which they rely on one another to remind one another of this hope. Look in verse 9. And this is where he gets specifically, we see the prayer of Paul. He says that, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. How's Paul praying here? He wants them to be obviously confident in uh, the finished work of Christ in the gospel, but he's also saying in these verses that it is a, it is a community effort for us to walk in and be reminded of this hope, that we need one another. And how does that happen? Let's break down these, this verses 9 through 11 through a little bit. He starts off by saying that my prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more. How many of you guys have ever been on College Hills in a rainy season? <laughs> You're all laughing, you know. 
Uh, there was one time, uh, I remember, so the Owens in their old van, they got stuck. Uh, and so Ryan calls me like, hey, I, I need some help pushing out a van. We live like, they, they live like around by Unidad Park. And so we're really close. So we drove and helped, put, and like the streets were flooded. Like the water was up to here. And we were helping push them, push the, the van out. And they got to safe. And I think they ended up getting a new van. It was okay. But, <laughs> but the, we all know you're laughing because you know it's true. The water in that College Hills is terrible. It's because, you know, there's that arroyo that goes through, and whenever that arroyo fills up, it just, like, it has nowhere else to go. Like, the, the way, wherever it's traveling to, it, it's not traveling fast enough, and so the water spills over. It's a mess. It's an excess. That's the image I want us to get when Paul says, I want your love to abound more and more. It's this ex- excess College Hills flooding kind of love. Yeah, you, you're laughing because you know. He, it's, it's, it's a love that is, 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 is overflowing towards one another. It's this excess love that they have for one another. But it's not just a kind of love that like, yeah, do whatever you want. It's it's not just like, uh, you do you. That love that affirms every choice and decision people make. But rather, it's it's a love that is informed by the gospel. It is a love that is informed by the gospel. He then says, he wants their love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless. There it goes again. um, In the day of Christ. So this, 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 this second part that Paul prays is that he wants their love to be informed by the gospel. Meaning that the gospel isn't just that meant like, hey, we, we, Jesus loves us. But yes, he does. But the gospel is also calling us to die to ourselves. It's a calling us away from living and finding pursuit and joy in the things of this world and ultimately in Christ. It's an informed love. It's a love that's calling us to something and not just an affirmation of whatever choice someone is making. Because let's be honest, we all make dumb choices. I don't want to be affirmed in every dumb choice I make. I make plenty. Ask Kirsty. Right? It's a love that's calling us to something. It's a love that's calling us and pulling us away from finding ultimate joy and satisfaction in things in this world and ultimately finding it in Jesus. And we see in verses, at the end of verse 10 and 11. So he says that he wants this love to be informed of the gospel uh, with knowledge and discernment so that we might be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so this is the second time in this, these short verses we see Paul mention the day of Jesus Christ. Again, this is this, he wants their hope and their eyes to be uh, on that, hey, Jesus is coming back from you. This is when, when you'll be completed. Your salvation will be complete whenever Jesus comes back for you. But in the meantime, he has you and he's holding on to you. And while in this space in between, as you are walking to try to put to death the things of this world and, and put on uh, Christ, you need the body of Christ to help you do that. You need the body of Christ. You need the church to help you know what it's like to know Jesus more. He wanted their their, uh, love for one another to be influenced by the gospel that was ultimately pointing them to the gospel. And ultimately, what does it look like for us to point one another to the gospel? It looks like we're all pointing one another to our dependency on Jesus. Our dependency on Jesus. Look in verse 11. So he wants them to be approved what is excellent and, and so that they can be pure and blameless of the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through whom? 
Jesus. Who produces the fruit within us? Christ does. Who is the one that is changing our hearts? Who is the one who's helping us lose taste for the things of this world and ultimately have a greater affection for him? Who's the one who's doing that in us? Jesus is doing that. Through the power of his spirit, he is the one who's doing that. And how he does that, he uses the body of Christ to help do that. But ultimately, so how he uses the body of Christ is that our job for one another is to point one another back uh, to Jesus, the one who actually can change us. We need one another to ultimately um, help one another. And how we help one another is that we ultimately point one another back to the one who can actually change us. Jesus, I have no power to change my heart. You don't have any power to change your heart, but Jesus does. So what greater way to help and love one another by pointing one another in all circumstances to him? I know for me, one of the greatest temptations that I have, especially when if I'm with someone, he's, they're struggling. Um, you feel, do you ever feel this tension when someone's like, just kind of like bearing before you their burdens? You feel this tension of like, I want to help, but I can't. I just don't know how. Like, you want to like, in some way, like give a tangible way to help remind them. And, and so it's like, you feel this temptation just to give a pacifier, right? Now there is space for, like practical advice is good. Uh, there, we definitely need to do that. But here's the thing. The way we love one another in those moments is not by trying to give some kind of temporary self-help thing, but rather as we point to the one who can actually change us. We can give each other pacifiers all we want, but at the end of the day, we're all just going to look like babies. We point one another to the person of Christ. And so as we love one another, our love is informed by the gospel. And it's ultimately, we point one another back to the person who can ultimately do the work in us to change us. That's how, that's the, how our love looks. That's the nature of our love for one another. And what's the result of it? What's, what's the results of a body of believers who have a, are confident in the gospel and who are pointing one another to the gospel? is that we see that God is glorified. What's his last little bit in verse 11? To the glory and praise of God. Therein lies the motivation of Paul. The motivation of Paul, he wanted them to be a people who were confident in the gospel. He wanted them to be a people whose love abounded more and more, but that's not where his motivation ended. His motivation for those things, for them to walk in those things, was that God's name be glorified in all the earth. It's the uplifting of his name in all things. The, the elevation of worship of God was the motivation of Paul. The motivation of Paul was to see the name of Jesus known in all people in the whole world. And what's cool is that there is not a disconnect between the things he's encouraging us to walk in and this motivation. For us to pursue a, a, a satisfaction in Jesus and a delight in Jesus is not antithetical to God being glorified. So you, you see, as we repent and turn, back from, turn away from our sin, God is glorified. 
When we spend time with someone who's struggling, who's really going through it, and you're pointing them back to their hope that he had in Christ and the hope that he can bring them and how he can change them, God is glorified. When we trust God, even amidst our being disciplined, even amidst the consequences, even in the midst, can I just say the suck? Yeah, because life feels that way sometimes. When we trust him in the midst of just the hardness of life, God is glorified. When we have our affections stirred, as we are around the body of Christ, as we are pointing one another, we're calling one another away from our sin into Christ, however that might look in any given circumstance or relationship, God is glorified. And ultimately, when we rely on Jesus and we depend upon him, um, he's glorified. And ultimately, when we realize that this, this, this confidence that we want to have in the gospel doesn't even come from us, but comes from God, he's the one who has to give to us, God is glorified. You see, there's not a disconnect between us finding life in Christ and, the, and our motivation being the glory of God. Piper, I love the way that Piper says it. John Piper says it like this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied and him. And this is where what I mean, this is the mantra of a people who are shaped by the gospel, is that our ultimate motivation for all things is the praise and worship of God. And when that is our motivation, that's when we will see in our lives this love for Jesus and this desire to point one another to him. And so, man, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Um, and so we think about the, the coming year, 2023. Um, we don't know what it's going to bring. Um, we don't know what life is going to look like a year from now. We can come back a year from now, and maybe it's the same. Maybe it's better. Uh, maybe it's worse. I don't know. I don't know. But what we can be sure of, uh, of today um, is that from this time into the next year into the next year is that we are in the space in between this good work that Jesus began in us and the day of him coming back. And in this space in between, we can rely on the promise that he is with us. He will not let us go. That he, his, his promises are sure that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Consequence is not condemnation. We can be sure that we are children of his, that we have been adopted into his family. We can be sure that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That we can be sure that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. We can be sure of these things, and it is in these things in which we will find hope. It is in these things in which we will find life in the person of Jesus. So my hope for Redeemer is that we would be a people in 2023 that would continue to grow, uh, to continue to grow in this confidence in Jesus and, 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 and rest in his finished work. That we would rest in what he has done for us. And that we would be a people in which we can continually point one another to this hope. And I'm excited because in the weeks to come, we'll be sharing some more vision things. We'll be sharing more about 2023 and about groups and other things that are coming up and just ways in which we can specifically uh, jump in and be more around one another. But um, 
make no mistake, is that you need one another to be reminded of this. And we, can be, we need one another to remind us that our hope uh, cannot be found in anything else but Jesus, that our, our full uh, acceptance comes from, from the finished work of Christ. And this is why we come to the table, is to be weekly reminded. This is one reason why we, we take communion every week, is that we need weekly reminders of our acceptance and approval before Christ. We need weekly reminders um, that um, Christ died for, for, for the sins that you did today, the sins that, that you did this week. That whenever he saved you, when he ever began this good work in you, he knew the things that you'd be struggling with today. He died for those things. Like it's dealt with. And so when we come to the table, when we dr- uh, drink the juice symbolizing his blood and we eat the bread symbolizing his broken body on the cross, we are reminding ourselves of where our true hope comes from. That, it, that we draw our life from him. Isn't that good news? Amen. You don't have to rely so much on yourself. God has given you a perfect Savior in which you can depend upon in all things. And he's given you the church, a group of people who can remind you of that. So as we partake this morning, look around too. Look, look, look who your brothers and sisters are as you're taken. These are the people. These are our people. This is our family. This is a family meal. We get to be a people who get to point one another to the greatest news that this world will ever hear. And so God, I am so thankful for the finished work of Christ. What you know, even this week alone, God, how my heart's, even just within the last 24 hours, Lord, how my heart's affections have been so split to other things. My heart's desires have been so split to things of this world, Lord. But God, you are a faithful and kind and generous and gracious God in which you are always calling us back to yourself. And Lord, all you ask that we do is come. Your word says that we can bring all things to you and that you will give us the grace and help in the time of need. Lord, your word says that if we confess, we can bring that you will cleanse us and you will forgive us. These are promises, Lord. And I pray that these would be promises in which we continue, Lord, to not only preach to ourselves, but preach to one another. Lord, would you help us as a church lose taste for the things of this world and gain a greater uh, affection for you? Because God, it's only when we have a greater affection and greater love for you that is given to, you, given to us by your spirit, Lord, is in which we can actually move away from the things of this world. Because so God, we are so in need of you. And so God, would you help us lean in this morning to our need and realizing that actually acknowledging our need is the greatest, is the most strong thing that we can do. Would you help us be a church in which we continue to abound in love to one another, a love that is informed by the gospel, a love that is pointing one another to this hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. And it's in his name that we pray.
Amen.